I'm Suzanne Murdoch and welcome to Series 3 of Powering Productivity. Each episode I explore the energy, the really genuine connections, expertise and being in your best flexible working environment can bring to you, your business and your whole life. So let's get started. Welcome, I'm your host Suzanne Murdoch and today I'm joined by the lovely Carol Conway who works as a freelance catalyst. Carol's a lifelong behavioural scientist with a passion in human dynamics and a deep belief in people. She's worked with CEOs, management teams and boards of numerous organisations, much of this being in the voluntary and community sector. And on any given day, this can include training, facilitation, leadership development or coaching. And I should also mention that as well as this, Carol's also a yoga teacher and I'm really keen to delve into um, how quite unbeknown to me, even though I love yoga, how this really intertwines with the whole leadership Mm -hmm. dynamic. So Carol, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for the invitation. It's really lovely to be here. Tell me a little bit about your your story and how you've got to where you are now. What really gives you the the energy and drive to do what you're doing? Oh, Oh, that's a go back to the beginning question, isn't it? I mean, it's funny. I think these stories often make sense in hindsight. I can I can draw a thread through, but at the time, it often feels like jumping around in slightly random ways. So, you know, the behavioral science piece started in college. I studied psychology and economics. I think at the time, economics was trying to be a hard science. It hadn't quite, you know, given in to the fact that it's a behavioral science. So, um, and then from there, Really, it's been a funny mix. I moved into the voluntary community sector almost by accident. So I started as a volunteer and then worked in a a drugs project in the inner city of Dublin, straight out of college, really at the time with the clarity and certainty that you only have when you're 20. So really, you should enjoy that when you have it. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was going to go back and do a master's in counselling psychology and be a family therapist. And the college had some mad notion that I needed to be older than 21 to do that. So I was going off to do a bit of voluntary work to qualify myself for the master's program. And that certainty fast faded. So I got to do what I thought I wanted to do, which is work with families in crisis. I discovered that's really hard work, really tough work. I realized it probably wasn't where my skill set lay because I was too enmeshed. I hadn't figured out the boundaries for empathy and, and boundaries. But what I did discover a skill for and a talent for in that drugs project was training and development and helping people to be the best they can in the circumstances they find themselves in. And we certainly weren't calling it leadership development. But if I look back, that was the beginning of that, um, working with people in quite chaotic environments to help them to be their best selves. And then if I do a kind of fast forward, because we've got several decades in between, (laughs) that somehow evolved over the course of a number of years, into a really clear focus on leadership. And I suppose that got very honed in Common Purpose. So Common Purpose Ireland is a leadership development charity. It's one of a network of Common Purpose companies globally and working very much bringing together cohorts of leaders from across all different sectors and perspectives to learn together the core of good leadership, irrespective of whether you're running a small charity or a large government department or a multinational Google. Um, so, so I worked there for a number of years, and I suppose that's when all of the strands kind of coalesced into this is this is what I'm good at, and this is what I like to do, and it has been ever since in in various different guises. Fantastic! That's quite a journey. 
quite a lot. And of that was, that's the abbreviated version. Diversity <laughs> is the word that springs to mind now. Yeah. So we got we got talking um, last week about you know the different perspectives of leadership and development mm. and how they really work within the I guess the flexible hybrid workplace as it is today and really what what do we need to, what do we need to think about and consider um, and how can it actually strengthen the sustainability diversity within both us as leaders and within teams in the workplace right now mm. and I love the way you brought up the the, the common purpose island. Um, role that you're very much a part of or have been for a while and, and, and yes yeah a little bit of, uh, tell me a little bit more about that and how that really fits into the workplace mm. so so I'll draw a couple of strands together so I, I joined Common Purpose as I say back gosh at the turn of the century do you know somebody described 1999 that way recently it gave me heart failure so yes I joined Common Purpose at the turn of the century <laughs> um, so over 20 years ago now and and I I was the first full-time CEO of the Irish company after we hived off completely separately from the UK business. Um, so I got to experience that aspect of leadership. So I had been supporting leaders um, and now I needed to be one in a small and growing company. And then I left Common Purpose full-time for the only other leadership role that would really have attracted me away at the time, which was parenthood. So when I was, when my first son was about 18 months old, I realized I didn't quite have the balance that I wanted. Um, and actually, this does tie into the leadership thing, because the question I remember asking myself was, if my purpose in life is to enhance the leadership that's available to us in the world, where do I have the most possibility to have impact? Is it with these 40 people that I get to spend a day a month with in a room having really fascinating conversations? Or is it with the small human being that I get to spend every day of his life with, at least for the first 18 years? And I decided that was where I needed to put my emphasis so I officially stepped away from Common Purpose almost 15 years, 14 years ago now. Um, and then we don't know if it's Hotel California or I'm a bad penny because I keep showing up. So I've had the pleasure of being available to them as an associate from time to time. And then about four or five years ago, when it was going through a bit of a restructure and they needed new new blood at board level, but also at the same time needed to retain some of the history of the organization. I got invited back as a trustee. So I've been sitting on the board of Common Purpose for the last four years, I think now. So that's been a thread right through my leadership journey. And I think the diversity thing that you picked up on is what Common Purpose really taught me. And in a funny way, the flip side of diversity is commonality. So on the one hand, Common Purpose really taught me to appreciate the diversity of different types of leadership, different types of organizations. You know, we, we would look at the those kind of sectoral stereotypes. So people who'd come up for the private sector would get an opportunity to say in quite entertaining ways what they thought of the bleeding heart liberals in the voluntary sector or the, you know, stodgy public sector or and vice versa. And then we got to unpack those. Actually, what I began to see was that there was huge commonality. And interestingly, I think one of the biggest differentiators in terms of leadership style and effectiveness isn't to do with what sector you're in, it's to do with scale. I began to see a lot of similarities between CEOs of very small charitable organizations and small social enterprises and small business startups. And equally, you saw more, more similarity maybe between some of the large corporate, you know, very private sector and big government departments, because the challenges of leadership were about how do you bring 400 people with you on a journey as opposed to four. So I think that was 
really interesting learning ground for me to break down some of the assumptions we have about what kind of leaders exist in what kind of environments and to realize that it's as much diversity as there is, there's also quite a lot of commonality. That's actually really interesting. I think I mentioned to you last week, we were at um, a women in business conference there a few weeks ago, very similar conversations in that it was about scale. The challenges that Mm -hmm. say the smaller businesses have are very similar across the different sectors. So it might be social media, for example, being able to make that impact there. And if we really pull together across the sectors um, at that sort of scale, then we can use each other's expertise and really harness the strengths there. Whereas at a corporate level, the challenges could be could be very, very different. And I think the word I picked up on that you mentioned earlier was impact. Where can where can we as mm-hmm. leaders have the most impact? Where do our strengths lie? And yes, obviously, we've all got weaknesses, but we can pull on those other experts that we know to help strengthen yeah. those areas. So I love the, the, the core principles of um, the common purpose as an organisation and the diversity and how we can really pull together and help each other. Absolutely. And I think that's what I was just going to say, too. The common purpose approach and what you've described the Women in Business Network, and I suppose what has become part of my freelance practice now is really about looking at those peer networks for people in leadership roles. Because I think one of the things we lose sight of is that leadership can be very lonely. And obviously, I'm working in the, you know, predominantly in the voluntary sector where leaders in that, in those organizations are literally sandwiched between. So if you're a CEO of a small to medium or even a large site scale charity, you're managing a team, either volunteers and paid staff or volunteers or paid staff. And your manager is a board of volunteers. So, you know, unlike maybe if I'm running a division within a large multinational, my boss has a lot of expertise. Actually, in the voluntary sector, you're very much managing up and down. But this is where that sectoral differentiator also becomes a commonality. Leadership is lonely in any space um, because even if I have a very good boss, they're not necessarily the person I want to turn to and say, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing because they're responsible for my appraisal and I have all these ideas that I need to make a good impression. So only in some really healthy organizations am I going to have that relationship with my own manager. So I think those peer networks are really crucial and engineering them rather than assuming that we have them because we often do have good networks of friends or we make friends through work and they can become supportive. But then that still creates a kind of, or can create that sense of, oh, I don't want to bore my friends with this. Whereas I think having, whether it's a women in business network or as I run a CEO support group, we literally have a support group um, for CEOs. And it's a place where I, I know that that is the purpose of this conversation is for me to bring a challenge and say, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Or like I might have an idea, but I'm really not sure it's going to work. And to trust them that I have a group of peers who understand the challenge of leadership, even if their organization is quite different to mine. And just I think that that the loneliness of leadership is something we we can lose sight of. And we can do a lot of work in organizations around morale and team spirit. But it's often assumed that it's everybody else who needs that. And the person who's often holding responsibility for sustaining that doesn't have anybody supporting them. And I think that's yeah, really important. That, that's great. And it comes back to, you know, unless you're looking after yourself, how can you look after other people? Well, yeah. Carol, what do you see as the biggest 
qualities of effective leadership when we talk about the hybrid, the remote workplace. So you've often got um, CEOs or team leaders who aren't even in the same building as their team. What do you think those qualities are that they really need to keep at the forefront of their mind? But, and I think it's really interesting because it was in conversation with you last week that this really crystallized for me. I'm not sure that they're different. I think that the hybrid or remote work environment has forced us to see more clearly some core qualities that I suspect are necessary anyway. And one of them is about, I mean, this has always been the role of leadership, but we kind of got away with not always doing it very well if everybody was in the building. And that is real clarity of purpose really being able to crystallize for yourself, for the team, for, you know, for the organization as a whole, what are we trying to achieve here? What is the goal? And not just the big picture vision of how we want to change the world. Again, in the voluntary sector, we have big visions about changing the world, but clarity of purpose at different stages for this project. What does success look like for this week? If you've got all your work done, how do we know? And the reason that becomes clear in a hybrid environment is because the notion of presenteeism, which is a phrase I don't like, but I think it describes real practice, which was you got into the habit of as long as you were at your desk from nine to five or eight to four or whatever those hours were, I could trust as the manager that you are working. You could have been sitting there writing to pen pals, Googling, or just working really slowly. Who knows? But there was this sort of comfort so I could get away without doing good leadership. On Friday, how do I know if Suzanne's on a good week's work? Because every time I looked out my window, I could see it at her desk during her working hours. That wasn't good leadership. It was lazy assumptions. The minute Suzanne was working remotely, now how do I know on Friday if Suzanne's been working? Well, I need to have been clear on Monday. What does work look like? What needs to happen this week? So if those calls got made, if that report got delivered, whatever the activities, if the services got provided, whatever that activity is, So I think clarity is a really key feature of leadership. And actually, the hybrid remote environment has crystallized and reminded us that we can't get away with sloppiness around that. Because that's how I know you're at work. Yeah. And and the whole transparency. So we have to work harder at that communications, the open lines of communication. So it's all a lot more transparent. And, and, And you're talking about, you know, measuring results. You know, we don't. You're right. We can't just measure productivity as or she's sitting there, she's been sat there till nine, nine to five. It's about the physical results that you see and, and how you measure them. So it's looking at productivity much more um, differently from different perspectives and different measurables, I think. And I think we all know teams. and Because, again, some of that language of productivity and measurables doesn't sit comfortably in small charities that I'm working with. But we bring it back to the, we know teams where before lockdown, when we were all in the office, people got pissed off. You know that Carol one, she just sits there all day. She looks busy every time Suzanne comes in, shuffles things around to death. Those shag off. Well, Carol got away with that when we were all sitting in the office. Once we're at home, then it's got to be clear, what does Carol need to do this week? And if it's not clear to her and it's not clear to management, then how is anybody checking? So I think really that clarity piece but it ties to the second skill which you mentioned which is then communication you know and again communication was always an essential for good leadership but we could get away with lazy communication I could get away with walking into the room I mean I know one of the other things I'll say about my leadership journey is hugely is helpful 
if you're going to try and support people around leadership, that you constantly put yourself in leadership roles. So I've been a CEO of a small charity. I now sit on the board of small charities. I regularly take on voluntary leadership roles. And some of that is because I'm passionate about it. And some of it is also to really keep me honest, because I can say stuff that works fine in theory. But if I don't know for sure, you know, if I can't actually stand up and do it in practice, you know, so I'm not having to imagine other people being this, this, this awful. But, you know, in a room when everyone's there, how many of us know of organizations, whether the, the leader or the CEO or the social, the founder of a social entrepreneur has a notion, has an idea and bursts into the room full of excitement and says, I know what we should do. We should open up, you know, another house in Galway or whatever, and then walks out. And then there is chaos in their wake. And half the team think it's a decision and start acting on it. And half the team think it's a notion and forget all about it. And so that sort of just really off-the-cuff communication was happening all the time. Again, the hybrid environment and the remote work experiment that we got forced into just clarified and crystallized what was always essential. You know, as leaders, we always need to be careful of what we're saying. If I'm going to have a notion, I need to preface that with going, I've been thinking, now this is just an idea, but I want to throw it out there and make sure everyone's clear. That's a notion. I mean, I know a CEO who came back and said, I'm so confused. I was away for a week and I came back and we have a new policy. And they told me that I made it. And I walked her back and said, what was the conversation? Oh, but I was just thinking out loud. I was like, but they don't know. You're, just, <laughs> you're the boss. If you come in and say, this is how it's going to be, people are going to act on us. Carol, what about the, the language? We look, at di- we look at different sectors and we look at different types of organisations. So you've got, you've got the corporate, you've got small to medium charity, and some of them almost have a different language, a different way of saying things and you know, a different way of, of, of being. So you can, have a, you can have leaders who really work from the bottom up. You know, they ask their teams, how do you think you could achieve these re- results? What's getting in yeah. your way? What's stopping you from achieving? What what could really help you? Is it looking at it as almost a different language, a different way of relating to people, yeah. really listening to them, not just just, yeah. not just on the, the surface, but really deep listening? It's almost like you've read what I wanted to say because the sorry. third leg of this, no, no, be sorry. It's because actually these are so connected. So yes, there are different languages that we use and different ways of using language in different sectors and organizations but within your team there is hidden diversity so we we may or may not have a diverse team in terms of ethnicity in terms of gender in terms of all of the nine grounds that we have under legislation in ireland and you know and all of the kind of visible diversity that gets spoken about but we for sure if you have more than one human being in the room you've got diversity you've got diversity of thinking style you've got diversity of communication style and so not only do we need to be aware of how we're using language, and you'll notice that when somebody comes new into an organization and suddenly we get pulled up on ELAs that we were using that we didn't know we were using, TNAs being three-letter acronyms. <laughs> so we have all these crazy kind of words that we think are normal. Um, and a, a new member of the team comes in and starts asking, what's that, what's that, what's that? So there's that piece of language. But then there is also understanding how the different people in your team receive information, how they process information, what their preferences are. And so this comes back to, and maybe this is a soft word, a soft sounding word in a business context, but it is about compassion. It is about treating our workforce as human beings, treating the people, you know, so whether we're calling them staff or team or volunteers or workforce, 
it's not staff and products, you know, it's human beings. Um, so, and that requires, as you say, it requires a degree of listening. I think good leadership does involve talking to your team and saying, how do you work best and, and what motivates you and how do you like to be managed? Which is not to say that I'm going to agree and manage everybody exactly as they want to be managed, but that we start from a point of clarity where you're saying, I really like strict deadlines and micromanagement. And I'm saying, that's really not how I work. And then we're figuring out what's the middle ground. I mean, I think I had a kind of accidental learning on this very early when I was working as a manager and a leader in a small organization and had a member of the team who interestingly was working remotely because we had established a second office elsewhere in the country. And after a few weeks, I was like, something's not working here. And, And it was really about, constant phone calls and then me losing track of other things so we we had a conversation okay how about every time your question pops into your head if it doesn't need an urgent answer you write it down and then on a Friday we'll have a call and work through all of them together so that I can give you my full attention rather than answering things on the hop and that worked really well for us and then at a later stage with that individual I thought I had given a clear instruction direction rather than instruction about we have this activity I really want you to take some responsibility for recruiting some people onto it and then when the program happened and she hadn't I expressed disappointment and she just lifted me and went but she didn't give me a target and so that triggered a conversation it wasn't real for her unless it had a numeric target so from then on I was very careful if I was setting work for this individual what was really interesting to me maybe a decade later I was brought in to do some support work um, where that person was a manager and the person that she was managing, I was having this conversation about how they like to work. And they said, oh, it doesn't matter how I like to work. I have to work to targets. And I know, I know you're going to agree with that because that's your methodology. And I said, pardon? I, I don't really identify with that. What do you? Well, their manager, who had been this person I managed, managed everybody with really strict numeric targets. You must make this many calls today. You must do this. You must do this. And, and when challenged on it, would say, well, that, you know, so she, and I had a conversation with her going, you're the only person I ever managed in my life that way. That's not my management style. That was what worked for us. That was not my directive for how all management should be done. But I think there is, unless you're prepared to treat everybody as an individual, and to have those conversations, which again, just to be clear, I'm not saying if you're managing 12 people, you have to have 12 different management styles, but you have to have 12 honest conversations. What works for you? What motivates you? Here's how I like to work. And where are the, where are the potential points of tension in that mix? And where are the points where we're going to work well? And let's work it through. And then you keep that and then you're back to communication. So you, have a, you, 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 decide, in the, you decide at the outset, here's how we're going to try working together. And you have a process for checking, is this working? You know, and that's back to clarity. How do we know if it's working? We know if it's working, if you're getting the work done. You know if you're getting the work done, if I'm setting the work clearly. So those three pieces for me of clarity and communication and compassion, they just keep interweaving. And I don't think it's different for a hybrid world. I think the hybrid world has helped to make it more apparent. Yeah, I completely agree there. And I think common values as well alignment in, in terms of values and constant three, 360 degree feedback from, from certainly from where I'm sitting has been absolutely key yeah. through all of this. Fascinating. There's one, one area I'd love to touch on desperate to talk about is the yoga. 
Yeah, um, I just remember how, we're supposed to talk about yoga. yoga intertwines with the whole leadership dynamic. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, and it's been an interesting journey for me because I have been I've been dabbling in yoga since I was in my teens. We had a family friend who was a yoga teacher well ahead of the curve before such things were known in Ireland and she went overseas to train. So I've been interested in yoga all my life and I suppose really got more serious about it myself in terms of training as a as a teacher. Oh. I guess I started training maybe over 10 years ago. I've been teaching for the last five or six years. And even at the point where I started teaching, it was still in my head, this other thing. So I had my work at this point, very well established, you know, a freelance practice, supporting individuals and organizations and teams around leadership development. And then I had yoga, which I loved and was now teaching. And it's really been over the last three or four years that it's become increasingly clear that it's the same work. It's just the same work approached differently. And by that, I mean, even if you look at sort of the leading edge of this conversation about compassion, if you look at the kind of the the interesting edges of cognitive behavioral work, of neuroscience, of kind of, I'm trying to think, trauma-informed leadership, the areas of um, somatic leadership. So this idea of what's encoded in our body, there's now a whole body of people working in corporate leadership development looking at somatic leadership. In fact, if you go back maybe just over 10 years, I think Amy Cuddy popularized some of those ideas in her TED talk about power posing and making a connection between how we move in our bodies and what how we feel and how we perform. So I suppose what's become really clear to me is it's the same work and it's the same work because it's all about how do you help human beings live their potential? And actually human beings are not, despite Rene Descartes' assertion, we are not a separate mind and body. We are a single integrated whole. One of the organs within our skeleton is a brain, and it is connected to a whole load of other organs that also use neurotransmitters. And so this kind of very neat separation, which I think in, in organizational terms, there was a period of time when leadership and work was from the neck up. Everything else was kind of irrelevant, unless you're a dancer, or unless you were doing something very evidently involving your body. But for, you know, for corporate or for the kinds of organizations maybe you and I are working with. And I think what's become abundantly clear is that doesn't work. You cannot think your way through transformation. You cannot think your way out if you're not prepared to deal with the emotional content and the physiology. So then I go back to the ancient teachings of yoga and you look at what, you know, what really does yoga teach us? And not just the Western adoption of yoga as another workout system, you know, and it's obviously there's fantastic physical practices. But the eightfold path of yoga, you don't get to physical practices till step three, because the first two steps are all about ethics. The first two steps in yoga, yamas and niyamas, are about am I right with myself and am I right with the world? They're about honesty and cleanliness and do no harm and really fundamental. You talked about values. If you were to look up the yamas and niyamas and pull the value statements from organizations that you admire, you'd find a lot of crossover. You know, it's a lot about truthfulness and integrity and care and compassion. So yoga is actually a full system too. And then we move into how we move our bodies, how you use the breath and how we get focused concentration and beyond that into meditation and enlightenment. And maybe no corporate plan is ever trying to get us to enlightenment. (laughs) But, But actually in the process, it turns out there's a lot of crossover. And I think it's been really interesting that even the mainstream of leadership development, you know, we've had a lot more shifts now, which is about this kind of human approach, work human, 
I'm thinking of a lot of Brené Brown's work around vulnerability and compassion and leadership, Kristen Neff's work around compassion. You've got a lot of internationally renowned speakers and writers talking about leadership in a corporate environment and using this kind of language. So, so it's been really interesting for me to see those as two strands that have kind of merged very significantly in the last couple of years. Yeah, and I think you've seen a lot more in the last couple of years of those sorts of be- people being brought into organisations to make them more aware of looking after themselves yeah. and being more aligned with values and kind of compassion, the empathy side of things. Yeah, well, even that whole, so well-being is the phrase that gets kind of wrapped around that, but even the awareness of an interest in an investment in well-being and mental health as part of the workplace, like that, again, is just all part of that reintegration of people as humans. I mean, I, I've said it for years and I used to say it half as a joke. And now I feel like I was a little bit prescient. But, you know, two decades ago when I started doing training work and I looked at what I was offering people. And, I, and again, within the tax code, there's like, well, is this professional development or is this personal development? And I was like, I don't buy it. I don't buy a clear line between personal development and professional development because we bring ourselves to work. Yes, we may have a mask that we wear and we certainly did compartmentalize more, but fundamentally we are who we are. And so I don't think you can do professional development and not deal with the personal. And I think if you do personal development, it plays out at work. We all bring different styles and different, you know, different strengths, different, different being, different values. I just think we, I can, no, I completely agree with what you say there. It's all, it's all part of one, one being. And as you going back to something you said, I think organizations are really embracing that in a different way. Now, there is an interest in having people who are aligned with our values because we recognize, again, if we want to be very, you know, bottom line about it, you're going to get better productivity. You're going to get better results if you're hiring for alignment than if you're just hiring for skills. I mean, Jack Welch back in the 80s did that matrix about, you know, we can train for skills, but you can't train for fit. You know, you know this one? Oh, okay. So that's, I mean, gosh, Jack, well, but there's a, one of those little four-part graphs where you say, you know, in an organization where you have two people who are performing badly, um, so you have performance on one graph and you have culture fit on the other. If you have someone who is, or sorry, it, within those four quadrants, you'll have some people who are very clear, they're a good culture fit and they perform well. So that's easy. We keep them. You have people who are bad culture fit and perform badly. That's easy. We let them go. The two interesting quadrants he contended were the people who perform well but are a bad cultural fit, people who are underperforming but are a good cultural fit. And he said, and this was in the 80s in a very corporate, was Jack Welch GE? I think he was. I think he was General Electric in America. And he said the tendency, of course, is to keep and promote the high performer who is a bad cultural fit and to lose the low performer. who's. And he said that's backwards. Because what you do is you undermine everybody else because they see bad behavior being rewarded. So the person who sales targets, who's hitting their sales targets by stealing everybody else's customers, you keep them and you damage everybody's morale. Whereas the person who's not performing says, you can teach skills. You can make a person a better salesperson if they buy into the values and the culture and the culture of the organization. And so he said you needed to flip that. That was a really... um, there's probably a name on it. There's probably a proper model for it. But it was something that really stuck in my head. You know, so we can always train for skill. And I think that has, you know, in, in the business culture too, you see that now has come around that people are more interested 
um, increasingly in how is this person going to fit and work well in our team? Not instead of, but as well as do they have the skills to do the job? That just having the skills to do the job isn't going to be enough if, it's a, if, it's, if the individual is going to jar and come into conflict and create discord in a team because actually the whole team then is not going to work as effectively. Wow. Carol, that's a fantastic conversation. Tell me more about how people can, can work with you. How can they get in touch? Well, I'm quite easy to find. So my website is freelancecatalyst.com. And um, Carol Conway, you'll find my profile on LinkedIn. I do exist on Facebook. I almost never do anything. <laughs> I probably need to come to you, Suzanne, to talk about my social media practices. But, um, but I'm always, my, my email address and phone number are on the website. And obviously, you can message me through LinkedIn. I'm always very happy for people to reach out and, and be in touch. And uh, yeah, because I love, I mean, I've loved this. And I just love having interesting conversations. So, you know, some of the best work I've ever done has come out of just sort of random conversations that neither of us intended to create work. But then we found something that we could work on together. So I think that's always um, back to the diversity, back to where we started and the diversity Absolutely. of my career. It's just curiosity. You know, I'm happy to talk to anybody about anything, particularly if it's something they're interested in. I love listening to people about stuff they're interested in. So, yeah, if anybody's interested to get in touch, please do. Brilliant. And that's another great word, curiosity. Mm. Curiosity. Carol, thank you so much for your time. It's been fabulous, curious conversation. Keep doing what you're doing and you're doing it brilliantly. (laughs) Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's been a delight. Thanks for listening. You can find more information in the show notes or on our website, thehubnury.com. While you're there, why not join our mailing list so we can keep you in the know about everything we're up to. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. Powering Productivity is presented by me, Suzanne Murdoch. It's produced by Emily Crosby Media.